Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. The Assyrian Tree of Life, tracing the origins of Jewish monotheism and Greek philosophy by Simo Parpola, University of Helsinki, with commentary by yours truly, Frater R.C., A stylized tree with obvious religious significance already occurs as an art motif in 4th millennium Mesopotamia, and by the 2nd millennium BC, it is found everywhere within the orbit of the ancient Near Eastern Oikumene, including Egypt, Greece, and the Indus civilization. The meaning of the motif is not clear, but its overall composition strikingly recalls the tree of life of later Christian, Jewish, Muslim, and Buddhist art. The question of whether the concept of the tree of life actually existed in ancient Mesopotamia has been debated, however, and thus many scholars today prefer the more neutral term sacred tree when referring to the Mesopotamian tree. About the middle of the second millennium, a new development in the iconography of the tree becomes noticeable, leading to the emergence of the so-called late Assyrian tree under Tukulti Ninurta I. With the rise of the Neo-Assyrian Empire, this form of the tree spreads throughout the entire Near East and continues to be seen down to the end of the first millennium. Its importance for imperial ideology is borne out by its appearance on royal garments and jewelry, official seals, and the wall paintings and sculptures of royal palaces, as in the throne room of Ashurnasirpal II in Calais, where it is the central motif. The hundreds of available specimens of the late Assyrian tree exhibit a great deal of individual variation. There's an appendix for that in this essay that you can review. This is an essay worth reading. It's essential for anyone, and I was glad to remember and find it again. And it's also one of those beautiful academic essays in which the text is about a third of the page or less, and the footnotes consume the rest of the page, which is my favorite academic style. The numerous variation that we see in the Tree of Life, or really Trees of Life, reflects the fact that the motif and most of Tree of Life iconography were inherited from earlier periods. Nevertheless, 
its characteristic features stand out even in the crudest examples and make it generally easy to distinguish it from its predecessors. Essentially, it consists of a trunk with a palmetto crown standing on the stone base and surrounded by a network of horizontal or intersecting lines fringed with palmettes, pine cones, or pomegranates. See figure one. In more elaborate renditions, the trunk regularly has joints or nodes at its top, middle, and base, and a corresponding number of small circles to the right and left of the trunk. Antithetically posed animal, human, or supernatural figures usually flank the tree, while a winged disc hovers over the hole. Even the most schematic representations are executed with meticulous attention to overall symmetry and axial balance. Now, if these facts don't shock you, especially given the Brian Mirarescu's uh, a recent book on the immortality key and all this trend in, in academic and scholarly work these days seems to be pushing for an origin of a lot of things to ancient Greece and Egypt. The idea that these things originated in ancient Greece or Egypt is so uh, historically irresponsible to promote. Uh, it's uh, Well, that's why it's happening outside of the academy. You wouldn't get away with that in a university setting. There's some good things about scholarship, and this is one of them. You can't just change history because it suits your narrative. Two, the tree, its symbolism and conceptual structure, the basic symbolism of the tree. What did this tree stand for, and why was it chosen as an imperial symbol? Very good question. There is considerable literature on this question, but despite the most painstaking analyses of the iconographic evidence on the whole, little has been explained. This is largely due to the almost total lack of relevant textual evidence. The symbolism of the tree is not discussed in cuneiform sources, and the few references to sacred trees or plants in Mesopotamian literature has, have proved too vague or obscure to be productive. This reminds me of the lecture I saw of an Assyrian cuneiform scholar at the University uh, at British Library in London. Well, I was going to say last year, but I guess it's the year before last now. Happy New Year, everybody. And there was a piece of a tablet, a cuneiform tablet, that had been found that was put on a larger piece we've had for a while. And what we learned from that, according to the fellow who wrote his dissertation on it, was presenting his book, was whether what kinds of magic were legal and illegal. And that was something that wasn't clear in, about Assyrian and Mesopotamian culture. And now it was made clear by that finding of this piece of rock of a tablet. <laughs> Pretty cool. The, uh, it can't escape the idea of the disc either surmounting the tree of, of Assyria being so poignantly emblematically shown later on in Egyptian iconography and, and religious art. It's quite remarkable. Note, the association of disc and tree already occurs in Mitannian art, but the Assyrian representations differ significantly from their Mitannian counterparts, both regarding the position of the disc and its iconography. Iconographical innovations not found in the Mitannian disc include streamers hanging from the disc, often extended to enclose the tree, a feathered tail, a god riding in the disc, Shout out to you alien lovers there and you spaceship people. And a volute on its top, resembling those emerging from the nodes of the trunk. The streamers may terminate in forked lightning bolts, circles, or palmettes. 
The god in the disc regularly raises his right hand in benediction and may hold a bow in his left hand. In some representations, he is accompanied by two smaller gods riding on the wings of the disc. Funny has a bow, right, as in Keshet, the rainbow of promise. The bow is such a strong uh, relic or artifact found in, in the Hebrew Testaments. Testament, the books of the Old Testament, as you might pejoratively call it. Again, this stuff didn't start with the Bible. A lot of people think that, uh, say, you hear a lot said today that people say, oh, well, it all comes from the Bible, goes back to the Bible. No, it doesn't. Get your head on straight. Come on, folks, we're smarter than this. And the uh, blessing gesture recalls the symbolic representation of God the Father in early Christian iconography. Two fundamentally important points have nevertheless been established concerning the function of the tree in the throne room of Asher Nasirpal's palace in Calais. Firstly, Irene Winter has convincingly demonstrated that the famous relief showing the king flanking the tree under the winged disc, slab B23, figure 3 at the British Library, British Museum, sorry, corresponds to the epithet vice-regent of Asur in the accompanying inscription. Clearly, the tree here represents the divine world order, maintained by the king as the representative of the god Asur, or Asher, I think, embodied in the winged disc covering above the tree. Secondly, it was observed some time ago that in some reliefs, the king takes the place of the tree between the winged genies. Whatever the precise implications of this fact, it is evident that in such scenes, the king is portrayed as the human personification of the tree. Thus, if the tree symbolized the divine world order, then the king himself represented the realization of that order in man, in other words, a true image of God, the perfect man. It's hopefully poignant to you how much these ideas predate Judeo-Christianity and even Egypt and Phoenician religion. Note in the book of Daniel, chapter 4, King Nebuchadnezzar dreams of a great tree Quote, in the midst of the earth, around which all the beasts of the field and the birds of heaven congregate. Then he sees a watcher and an holy one come down from heaven, crying, Hew down the tree, cut off his branches, shake off his leaves, and scatter his fruit, and let his portions be with the grass in the earth, let his heart be changed from a man's, and let a beast's heart be given unto him. Daniel interpreted this tree as representing the king himself, who, in modern psychological terms, had identified his limited and personal self with the divine selfhood which his kingship symbolized. If this reasoning is correct, it follows that the tree had a dual function in Assyrian imperial art. Basically, it symbolized the divine world order maintained by the Assyrian king, but inversely, it could also be projected upon the king to portray him as the perfect man. Right here, it should be apparent to you, so you see an antecedent for the idea in the Emerald Tablet of the micro and macro prosopus and the as above, so below, or as below, so above, predating the tablet and Egypt and all of that stuff. Of course, you could say that... We're just all culturally appropriating Assyria, and it should pay them reparations, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, this interpretation accounts for the prominence of the tree as an imperial symbol, because it not only provided a legitimation 
for Assyria's rule over the world, but it also justified the king's position as the absolute ruler of the empire. The complete lack of references to such an important symbol in contemporary written sources can only mean that the doctrines relating to the tree were never committed to writing by the scholarly elite who forged the imperial ideology, but were circulated orally. Yeah, it's often the case that we don't have the writings of oral traditions because they were so pervasive and so common. Everyone knew this stuff. We just talked about it all the time that in an earlier period, the only things that really had to be written down most often in cuneiform stuff were accounting, how much grain was being sent to Ur, how much wheat was being produced, how much uh, this or that was being traded. And that was, that's what most of the ancient, most ancient writings in cuneiform are. They aren't the religious teachings, which they believed, of course, that this massive empire would never fade probably, and we'd have their oral tradition for forever. The nature of the matter further implies that only the basic symbolism of the tree was common knowledge, while the more sophisticated details of its interpretation were accessible to a few select initiates only. The existence of an extensive esoteric lore in 1st and 2nd millennium Mesopotamia is amply documented, and the few extent written specimens of such lore prove that mystical exegesis of religious symbolism played a prominent part of it. Exegesis, of course, is the drawing of meaning out from a text. The Sephirotic tree, as opposed to the erotic tree. We're going to talk about the Sephirotic tree. Mesopotamian esoteric lore has a remarkable parallel in Jewish Kabbalah, and, more importantly, from the standpoint of the present topic, so does the Assyrian tree. A schematic design known as the Sephirotic Tree of Life figures prominently in both practical and theoretical Kabbalah. In fact, it can be said that the entire doctrinal structure of Kabbalah revolves around this diagram, a form which strikingly resembles the Assyrian tree. The Sephirotic Tree derives its name from elements called Sephirot, literally countings or numbers, though the way I was told the word meant was spheres by Rabbi Yonashim Gershom, who was the rabbi who taught me in Kabbalah in Vienna in 1997. And he's, uh, I think he's in California now, if he's still alive. He does research on reincarnated people, uh, victims from the Holocaust, from the concentration camps. Represented in the diagram by circles numbered from 1 to 10, they are defined as divine powers or attributes through which the transcendent God, not shown in the diagram, so the, man, the divine God is always above the tree, isn't, isn't contained in the tree, manifests himself. Each has a name associated with its number. The tree has a central trunk and horizontal branches spreading to the right and the left, on which the sephirot are arranged in the symmetrical fashion. Three to the left, four on the trunk, and three to the right. The vertical alignments of the sephirot on the right and left represent the polar opposites of masculine and feminine, positive and negative, active and passive, dark and light, etc. The balance of the tree is maintained by the trunk, also called the pillar of equilibrium. Note, in some Sephirotic diagrams, of course, Ein Sof is represented by a circle hovering over the tree, like the disc. Um, see uh, Charles Ponce Kabbalah, that's a good book, one of the first I read. Recalling the winged disc hovering over the Assyrian tree, as well as the image of the glorified Christ shown above the tree of life in Christian art. Note that the origin of the names of the Sephirot um, 
some of which have alternatives, is obscure. If you look at Abraham Abulafia's remarks in his Imre Shefer, which you can find cited in Moshe Adel's wonderful book, Kabbalah, um, and I believe the author here is referring to Kabbalah New Perspectives, since this is uh, before he, it, Moshe Adel wrote Absorbing Perfections. And uh, Abulafia, of course, is writing around the year 1270. The theosophists claim that they received from the prophets and the sages that there are ten sephirot, and they designated each and every sephirot by names, some of them being homonyms, others proper names. And when they were asked to explain them, those who know them were unable to say what the sephirot are and to what entity these names refer. And their names are well known from their books, but they are very complex regarding them. Sort of a shot at the theosophists and their lack of knowledge about this. The author, I think, here is misusing that quote, which Adele is probably employing to point out the common ignorance in uh, appropriated forms of Jewish Kabbalah in Western esotericism. That's what it sounds like to me. Now, like the Assyrian tree, the Sephirotic tree has a dual function. On the one hand, it is a picture of the macrocosm. It gives an account of the creation of the world, accompanied in three successive stages by the Sephirot emanating from the transcendent God. It also charts the cosmic harmony of the universe upheld by the Sephirot under the constraining influence of the polar system of opposites. In short, it is a model of the divine world order and in manifesting the invisible God through his attributes. It is also, in a way, an image of God, or in Hebrew, Tzalem. On the other hand, the Sephirotic tree, like the Assyrian, can also refer to man as a microcosm, the ideal man created in the image of God. Interpreted in this way, it becomes a way of salvation for the mystic seeking deliverance from the bonds of flesh through the soul's union with God, the arrangement of the Sephirot from the bottom to the top of the diagram marks the path which he has to follow in order to attain the ultimate goal. The crown of heaven represented by the Sephira number one, Keter. Tradition has it that the doctrines about the tree were originally revealed to the patriarch Abraham, who transmitted them orally to his son. In actual fact, the earliest surviving Kabbalistic manuscripts date from the 10th century AD. It's common era. It is, that's only a thousand years old, is for the, the oldest surviving Kabbalistic manuscript we have, this is a fact, is from the 10th century. It's only a thousand years old in that regard. However, however, and this is a big however, it is generally agreed that the foundation stone of Kabbalism, as this author calls it, and some others do, the Sefer Yetzirah, was composed sometime between the 3rd and 6th centuries and the emergence of Kabbalah as a doctrinal structure can now be reliably traced to the 1st century AD. So it took us a while, but we can trace the doctrinal structure through oral tradition to the 1st century. The renowned rabbinical schools of Babylonia were the major centers from which the Kabbalistic doctrines spread to Europe during the High Middle Ages. You might not know this uh, if you aren't <laughs> into this field that much, but the whole Hebrew and Israel people were... Uh, stolen away into uh, Babylon during the Babylonian exile. They were kidnapped again, so they formed out of Egypt as these disparate tribes that escaped Egypt and roamed the Can hills of Cana and formed 
the Israel tribes. That's what actually happened as a, outside of the mythology they constructed for themselves. But then once they were established as a, the Judaic Empire, essentially, then they were kidnapped again, <laughs> more or less, into Babylonia. You know, hence the biblical line, the beautiful verse, by the river of Babylon, I sat down and wept. And so during that time, the Jewish rabbis were initiated into Babylonian mysteries and this Assyrian tradition inevitably is where they got the Kabbalah from while they were in Babylon. That's that's what most people think is, is the case in scholarship these days. Briefly, we should note a fifth invisible sephira, da'at, knowledge or reason, is sometimes inserted in the middle of the column between Keter and Tiferet. This non-sephira, and it's fifth of the middle pillar of the four spheres of the middle pillar. This non-sephira represents an interval or void separating the first three sephirot, the supernals, or the upper face, arik ampin in Hebrew, from the following six, the lower face, which is in Hebrew, zawir ampin. Note that da'at is concluded in Rav's list of ten creative words, while the sephira of Malkut, not forming part of the lower face, is lacking from it. Also, the right-hand alignment of the Sephirot is commonly referred to as the pillar of mercy and that on the left as the pillar of judgment or severity. And that's, of course, because the one on the left is crowned by the Sephira Gevura or Gebura. Uh, but its other more famous name or ancient name is Din, which means judgment, which is why we have the River Jordan. It's Jar Din. Um, so the pillar is then called severity. These two pillars, also known as male and female columns, or the good and evil sides, that's something you don't hear much, but it's true, are conceived as manifestations of two hidden divine principles, constraining the flow of emanations, the active, expansive one of mercy, and the passive, restrictive one of justice or rigor. See uh, Halevi for that interpretation, and also Charles Ponce. In this configuration, the sephirot contained within each pillar or unit are connected only to the others contained within the same pillar. The theme of polarity, the distinction of the opposites as male-female, positive-negative, dark and light, is what's emphasized. Now, the Zohar refers to this middle pillar as the perfect pillar. And we, of course, think of it as the pillar of consciousness in the middle that's generating the pillars of between generated between the pillars of force and form uh, in Hermetic Kabbalah. It serves as a mediating factor between the pillars of the right and left. There is also some Kabbalistic speculation that the center pillar is the tree of life, and the remaining pillars, the tree of good and the tree of evil. And that's one of my favorite things that no one ever talks about. Um, the idea that that all three all three things columns and pillars are three different trees. So the middle is the tree of life, which is the pillar of consciousness that we ascend up. And then on each side of us are the pillars of good and evil. When man ate the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he did not draw any sustenance from the tree of life, which mediates between the opposites. Now, again, the Middle Ages text, the Zohar, the greatest of the Kabbalistic texts uh, and the vastest, refers to this middle pillar as the perfect pillar. And Zohar, of course, is uh, Splendor, so the Sefer Ha-Zohar is the Book of Splendor. In this context, note that some Assyrian seals combine two trees in the same scene, one with the characteristic garland network, and one generally consisting of trunk and crown only. 
Note also uh, an empty garland arch beside a palm tree ridden by a monkey and an eagle. And another of the tablets showing a phoenix rising from a burning, perhaps, tree beside a tree with nine-petaled fruit crown. And if you look at these uh, ancient Assyrian images, you'll see also often this uh, disc at the top with the eagle's wings, and that's the symbol that Hitler took for his Third Reich, sadly. Now, the creation of the world is envisaged as a threefold process, taking place in the divine mind before the materialization of the physical world. It involves the expression of the idea by the divine will, its elaboration by the divine intellect, and its actual implementation by the divine emotion. The first phase is referred to as the world of emanation, and the associated, and associated with the first sephira, keter. The next two, which means crown, the next two are referred to as the worlds of formation and creation, respectively, and associate with the upper and lower faces. In an alternative scheme, the Sephirot are distributed in the different worlds in a triadic arrangement, the first three in the world of emanation, four to six in the world of formation, and seven to nine in the world of creation, while the last, Malchut, is located in the material world. The world of making as Charles Ponce notes. Also see uh, Zev Ben Shimon Halevi, Way of the Kabbalah. Is, it's a great book. Halevi's great. His, his, his uh, other name is Warren Kenton, and he was actually the spiritual director uh, for Sinead O'Connor when she was going through her uh, hard times. He's an English gentleman and uh, Kabbalist. Compare this with the three-layer triadic structure of the Assyrian tree discussed above. The emanation of the Sephirot is conceived of as a lightning flash issuing from the ocean of an endless light, Ein Sof Or. Or means light. The energy drawn from this source filters through the Sephirot who emanate in it further throughout the world. The unity of the Ein Sof and the Sephirot is fundamental to Kabbalah. Quote, the Ein Sof and its emanations are inseparable. What flows through the Sephirot is the light of the Ein Sof, which they need for their existence. Charles Ponce, Kabbalah. The flow between the individual Sephirot and the Ein Sof has been likened to streams of water poured into colored bottles, a zigzagging lightning flash returning to its origin, and the flow of an electric current through a system of functions in a circuit. Compare this with the stream-like lattice network and the pomegranate or cone garland surrounding the Assyrian tree, and note the lightning streamers emanating from the winged disc above the tree. Note also the Assyrian tree scenes with water receiving or water emitting bottles. If you uh, read Moshe Adel's book Kabbalah, which everyone has to, the book of Bahir, or Sefer Bahir, which is actually my favorite Kabbalistic text, it's the one that was written after the Sefer Yetzirah, and this is it's dated around 4th to 6th century, I believe, refers to the tree as an image of God by the term Hamale, fullness, a direct equivalent of Gnostic pleroma, divine fullness, on this concept also referred to as the all, topan, toholon in Greek. See Gershom Sholem, Origins of the Kabbalah, for more on that, quoting the Gospel of Thomas, where Jesus says of himself, I am the all, and the all proceeds from me. 
and you can compare and contrast that with Paul's letter to the Colossians, which is actually pseudo-Paul, because that's one of the most debated ones. We know half of Paul's epistles in the New Testament he wrote. We know half of them he definitely didn't write, and there's one in between that no, we're not really sure on, and that's Colossians. one fifteen to 19, chapter 15, 1, verse 15 to 19, in the openly anthropomorphic theosophy of ecstatic Kabbalah, and this is not Blavatsky's theosophy. The word theosophy existed before Blavatsky and is very essential to academia when we study the history of these things, of ecstatic Kabbalah and Merkava mysticism. Merkava means chariot, and that that's what they called the mysticism that formal Kabbalah grew out of before the last 2,000 years. The Sephirot are associated with the cosmic body of Adam Kadmon, the archetypal or perfect human being, or God himself. See Ponce and Sholem for more on that. An early Assyrian uh, 13th century BC uh, precursor of the idea of the Sephirot as the divine pleroma occurs in a prayer of Tokultu Ninurta I, where the sun god is invoked as the radiance and the storm god as the voice of the god Asur. I think that's really beautiful. Radiance and the voice. Maybe a name for a occult band. The idea of the cosmic anthropos is attested in Neo-Assyrian hymn to Ninurta, where the various parts of this god's body are systematically identified with specific deities of the Mesopotamian pantheon. There's an interesting note about the uh, Jewish mystical practice of uniomistica described with the metaphor of the drop of water and the sea. And you can see Adel, Moshe Adel stresses this, that the aim of the mystic was to achieve the state of union without being totally absorbed and lost in the divine abyss. On the practical goals of the mystical union, encounter with souls of the dead and acquisition of supernal secrets from ancient pious men was the practice. Altogether, the Sephirotic tree displays a remarkable similarity to the Assyrian tree in both its symbolic content and external appearance. In addition, given the fact that it seems to have originated on Babylonian soil, the likelihood that it is based on a Mesopotamian model appears considerable. And when an academic says something appears considerable, they mean that's what it is, but they can't say it. Then he says, as a matter of fact, a number of central Kabbalistic doctrines, such as the location of the throne of God in the middle heaven, like in Tiferet, are explicitly attested in Mesopotamian esoteric texts. The crucial question, however, is how the existence of the hypothetical Mesopotamian model can be proven, given the lack of directly relevant textual evidence. They didn't write any of this down in cuneiform in their tablets. None of it. It must be admitted that a priori it is possible that the observed similarities are simply coincidental and due to a common cultural heritage rather than to a direct borrowing. And here we have the possible fallacy of post-hoc, proctor hoc, right? Moving on. The Assyrian tree diagram. For the above reasons, I had for years considered the identity of the Assyrian and Sephirotic trees an attractive but probably unprovable hypothesis, until it finally occurred to me that there is a way of proving or rejecting it. For if the Sephirotic tree really is but an adaptation of a Mesopotamian model, the adaptation process should be reversible. 
That is, it should be possible to reconstruct the original model without difficulty. Note the case of Christian Kabbalah represented by outstanding scholars, philosophers, and theologians such as Giovanni Pico della Mirandola, Johannes Reuchlin, Egidio de Viterbo, and Jakob Böhme is instructive. This form of Kabbalah was demonstrably taken over from a pre-existing Jewish model with only minimal adjustments, such as the translation of the names of the Sephirot, the identification of Adam Kadmon and Ein Sof with Christ, or the reinterpretation of the three world ages as reigns of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. The essence of the system, including the tree diagram and other central Kabbalistic axioms, was not affected at all. This was possible because Christianity is rooted in both Judaism and classical philosophy. The Christian Kabbalists believed that they had discovered in the Kabbalah an original divine revelation to mankind, with the aid of which it was possible not only to understand the teachings of Pythagoras, Plato, and the Orphics, but also the secrets of the Catholic faith. See Sholem Kabbalah. Another conservative factor certainly was that the doctrines of Kabbalah crystallized in the tree diagram represent a highly integrated system of thought, which by its very nature works against radical changes in it. So no matter how much you might want to change these symbols and their basic ideas, it's very hard to do so when you're maintaining the symbols. It would be hard to construct a, a religion that isn't Trinitarian or triple goddessy or something like that if you are still using the three rays or a triangle or something like that. That's the basic idea. If you're using that basic symbol, the four elements in your religion's based around a square or something, yeah, it's, it's hard to change those things. Sacred geometry, baby. The basic elements of the tree, the sephirot, are crucial in this respect. Their names and definitions strongly recall the attributes and symbols of Mesopotamian gods, and their prominent association with numbers calls to mind the mystic numbers of the Mesopotamian gods. They are, in fact, represented as angelic beings in some Sephirotic schemes, which is consistent with their definition as divine powers. Accordingly, in the hypothetical Mesopotamian model, they would have been gods, with functions and attributes coinciding with those of the Sephirot. And I love this point. So I read this first when I was um, in a journal when I was uh, doing my book on Yeats's correspondence of the Irish gods, the Kabbalistic Tree of Life, and I was excited to sort of flush that out. And then I realized Yeats was really out to lunch on a lot of his correspondences. And then I found out that he really didn't have put much time into it at all. And Mathers did a first sketch combining different Celtic pantheons together. And then Yeats tried to make it just the Gaelic and Gaelicize it and, and then just make it Irish. But neither of them had that much time to do it. They also didn't have access to the kinds of mythological resources that we have today, largely because they went out and Yeats went out and collected these stories and published them with Lady Gregory and stuff. So it's much it was much easier for me to do it in the late nineties than it was for him to do it in the late eighteenth uh, century. But the most interesting part of this I think is that the criticism that has long been launched at Hermetic Kabbalists and even the whole New Age appropriation of the Tree of Life is that you're taking this core monotheistic idea from the heart of Judaism, the Tree of Life, and you're just warping it and randomly putting your gods on it. It's not a pantheistic symbol of 
different deities, despite the fact that the Kabbalists and, and Israelites had angels associated with the different spheres in Sephiroth's and world. It's a distortion. You can't just paganize the Jewish monotheistic tree of life. And here this scholar came along and gave credibility to what my project was uh, 20-something years ago. And he points out, look, this is how it was used originally. It was a diagram to show the different gods of the pantheon of Mesopotamia. So, woohoo! Consequently, I replaced the Sephirot with Mesopotamian gods sharing their functions and or attributes. Most gods fell into their place immediately and unequivocally. Assyriologists will need no justification for associating Ea, or Ea with wisdom, sin with understanding, Marduk with mercy, Samas or Shamas, Shamash? Shamash, yeah, it's the origin of the Hebrew word Shamash. It's the same word, uh, except it's not for the sun. It, so the Mesopotamian word Shamash was judgment, and the Hebrew word Shamash is sun. Ishtar with beauty, and Nabu and Ninurta with victory, Netzach. Crown, Keter, was the emblem of both Anu and Enlil. But since in the first millennium, Enlil was commonly equated with Marduk, just as his son Ninurta was equated with Nabu, the topmost Sephira most naturally corresponds to Anu, the god of heaven. Foundation, Yesod, corresponds to Nergal, lord of the underworld, whose primary characteristic, strength, is in Akkadian, homonymous, with a word for foundation, Danu. For the identification of Da'at with Mamu, consciousness, and the number zero, is your mind blown yet? The fact that when you really look at the Jewish Kabbalah, it takes you straight back to uh, paganism? I mean, a lot of us probably had that feeling. You just you couldn't say it because you're already in this cultural appropriation age where we're, we've just been distorting the very Jewish core symbolism of Jewish mysticism and Israelite esoteric religion. Um, but now, of course, this has been known for a long time. And it was this approach, this scholarly article, that let me realize I could undertake that, that academic work that Yeats had started and finish it with intellectual integrity to the history of, of the symbol. I really love this essay, and it's something everyone needs to read. It's a remarkable piece of work. Uh, curious, especially in the fact that there's pages where there's just two sentences or two lines, two lines at the top of the page, and then the rest of the page is footnotes. Most of this essay is footnotes, and I'm sharing my favorite ones with you. I had to resort to Talquist's Akadisha to find that the only gods with epithets fitting the Sephira Hod, splendor or majesty, were the storm god, Adad, the fire god, Giru and Marduk, Nabu, and Ninurta, the last three of whom already had their place in the diagram. Accordingly, this Sephira corresponds to Adad and Giru, who share the same mystic number, and it is noteworthy that in the Bible the word Hod, refers to Yahweh as a thundering and flashing storm. Quote, Then the Lord will make his voice heard in majesty, Hod, and show his arm sweeping down in fierce anger with devouring flames of fire, with cloudbursts and tempests of rain and hailstone. Isaiah 30, verse 30. Translation from the New English Bible. 
The beginning of this passage literally reads, Yahweh will make the majesty of his voice heard. And can be compared with Adad, the voice of your Ashur's majesty, from the Babylonian texts. Note the Hebrew word hod means glory, splendor, also beauty, and majesty. And in rabbinical Hebrew, also distinction and pride. Its closest semantic equivalent in Akkadian is the root sra, with its derivatives saru and sitrahu, glorious, splendid, proud, both of which are well attested as epithets of Adad, Giru, Nabu, Ninurta, Marduk. The same gods also share the epithet Gasru, or Gashru, mighty. When referring to Adad and Giru, such epithets were certainly associated with the continuous flashing and roaring of a violent thunderstorm. A thing to remember about the words, the names of the Sephiroth, uh, words like Hesed and Hod, they aren't normal Hebrew words that you use in regular language. These are actually very old words. They are, they're, they're, this was taught to me in, in, in ancient Hebrew class and seminary by the Jewish teacher, saying like, these are actually old words that come very have a special religious significance, a mystical meaning, and that's why they are semantically so varietous in their different meanings. They, one of the, the word hesed, hesed doesn't just mean uh, mercy. It has, it's this sort of divine, infinite loving kindness, overflowing mercy and the goodness of God, but also sort of a stern, you know, I'm watching you kind of thing. It's just, they're very complicated words. They, they are special. They are special words. They are words of power. And this is not a new idea. It goes back to ancient Israel and beyond into Assyria. Now, the last Sephirah kingdom, Malchut, and the letter Kaf, of course, is a double letter, so it can be Kaf, if, and later on represented, we know it's a Kaf later on because there's a, a dot in the middle, uh, Dogesh, or if there's not, then it's Chaf. So Malchut is the actual pronunciation of the word Malkut. It's not Malkut, it's Malchut. Nechush Nechash, Toda, Toda, is defined as the receptive potency which distributes the divine stream to the lower worlds which in Mesopotamia can only apply to the king as the link between God and man. The motif of the king as distributor of the divine stream is repeatedly encountered on Assyrian seals, where he holds a streamer emanating from a winged disc above the sacred tree. And those are the wings. I called them the eagle wings earlier. The Hitler appropriated. I have excluded this sephira from the reconstructed model because it breaks the compositional harmony of the tree, and because the king, though impersonating the tree, clearly does not form part of it in Assyrian art. So Malkut, if there's an addition in the Sephirotic Jewish tree, it is the Sephira of the kingdom, Malkut, because um, it doesn't have a representation in the Assyrian tree. It's always remarkable to look at this essay again and, and see his methodological approach, which is what I adopted, of course, for my book, The Celtic Mysteries of William of W.B. Yeats, Irish Gods, Myths, and the Kabbalistic Tree of Life, where I looked at the, the theogonic structure of divinities and mythology. So I looked at the theogenies, and a theogony is the collection of attributes that make up God, what that God is. The word is theogony. And I also looked at theocracies, which is not the same as the word theocracy is in a political system run by God, that with God at the head. It's a, spelt differently. And theocracy, the alternate spelling, means the uh, 
qualities that make up the God. Theogony is the generations that lead to the God. Theos, theocracy is the qualities of that God. Sorry, I sort of muddled it before. So the theogony is what gods led to that God being created. Theogony, theocracy are the qualities that make that God what that God is. It was very complicated when I looked at certain Irish deities, but you can see my book, the Celtic Mysteries of W.B. Yeats for that. It's referred to as extremely boring and stupid by many reviewers, but that's okay. They didn't uh, clearly uh, get trained well in the academic style it was written in, which was MLA citation style or in-text citation, which was very useful to use in that study because you can see as you're reading through the text which ideas come from which authors, which indicates to you which ideas were mine, where I uniquely put things together and see my own scholarship alive in the text rather than just hearing someone just write a bunch of stuff and go, well, where did he get this or that from? Have to look at footnotes or endnotes. No, it's right there in the text. This idea was here. This idea came from this person. And then when I say something but don't say it came from this idea, that's my idea. It's a very useful thing when you're using certain uh, historical structures and methodological approaches to what you could call constructive mythology. Once the gods had been placed on the diagram, which did not take longer than half an hour, took me a bit longer than that for the Irish gods, I filled in their mystic numbers using, as a guide, W. Rulig's article, Götterzahlen, in the uh, Rielexicon de Assyriologie. For the most part, this was a purely mechanical operation. In some cases, however, I had to choose between two or three alternative numbers. The numbers shown in figure 9 are those used in the spelling of the divine names in the Middle and Neo-Assyrian standard orthography. And orthography is just a, a way of writing, for some of you who might not know that word. And all of them are securely attested. I should point out that the number for Anu, I, 1, is erroneously given. Uh-oh, is 60 in Hölig's article. Of course, the vertical wedge can also be read 60. But in the case of Anu, the first god, the only reading that makes sense is one, as we shall see presently. The ease with which the gods and their numbers fitted into the diagram was almost too good to be true, and the insights obtained in the process were more than encouraging. Suddenly, not only the diagram itself, but the perplexingly opaque Mesopotamian religion as well started to make sense. I felt on the verge of a major discovery. The Distribution of Gods and Numbers in the Diagram Looking at the reconstructed diagram more closely, one observes that practically all the great gods of the Assyro-Babylonian pantheon figure in it, some occupying the same place because they were theologically equivalent. Only one major god is missing, Ashur, for whom no mystic number is attested. This strongly suggests that this important god has to be identified with the winged disc over the Assyrian tree from which the divine stream emanates, and accordingly is identical with the transcendent god of the Kabbalah, Ensof. As a matter of fact, the various spellings of Ashur's, Ashur's name can, without difficulty, be interpreted as expressing the idea of the one, only, or universal god as well as the various qualities of Ein Sof. The solar disk through which he was primarily represented implies that his essential nature was light, as in Kabbalah. Of the gods found in the diagram, 
Anu, king of heaven, occupies the crown. Ishtar, his daughter, representing all female deities, occupies the middle. And Nergal, the lord of the underworld, the base of the trunk. Thus remaining gods are arranged to the right and left sides of the trunk in a corresponding way, with sons lined under their fathers. In other words, the tree is composed of three successive generations of gods, appearing horizontally as interrelated trinities, to be compared with the triadic configuration of nodes, volutes, and circles of the Assyrian tree. Note, on the triadic structure of the Sephirotic tree in general, see Halevi, Kabbalah. This author really likes Halevi. Halevi is not the best uh, purely Kabbalistic writer to read, by the way. Um, he really does practice Kabbalah and use it as, see it as a spiritual practice, whereas a lot of scholars of Kabbalah don't. Uh, actually practice it, and sometimes they can be a bit more reliable. However, I love Halevi, so if you want a good book that looks at the biology of the human being and the circulatory system and blood and veins and flesh and skin and all that, read Adam and the Kabbalistic Tree, and it looks at the most amazing view of our human physiology regarding in the context of the Tree of Life. So that's Adam and the Kabbalistic Tree by Ze'ev ben Shimon Halevi. The horizontal triads corresponding to the divine generations are referred to as a succession of layers and associated not only with the worlds of creation, but also with three degrees of consciousness and layers of the soul. The latter association gives the tree a psychological dimension equaling in importance its theological and cosmological dimension. The topmost triad, representing of Ainsof's power of thought, corresponds to the highest degree of consciousness, the divine, or oversoul, Nashama, or Nashama, located in the center sephira, Keter, head. It is the place where the individual perceives the plan, or meaning of being. The second triad, representative of Ainsof's moral power and emotion, corresponds to the self-conscious soul, Ruach, Ruach. It's a soft H, actually, not like Ruach. It's Ruach, Ruach. Located in the Sephira Tiferet, Tiferet, heart. It is the world of moral virtues and the ability to distinguish between good and evil, a position where man can see others not in the light of his own needs, but in the light of their own. The lowermost triad corresponds to the animal soul, Nefesh, located in the Sephira Yesod, genitals. It is the world of instincts, where all conscious energies are concentrated in the sexual and instinctual sphere, and the individual is conscious only of his own needs. In contrast to the cosmological tree, which is visualized as emanating from above, the psychological tree is rooted in the netherworld, and its different layers are viewed in terms of a gradual progress towards a higher form of consciousness. In Hekalat Rabati, one of my favorite texts, the tree is likened to a celestial ladder whose first edge is on the earth and second edge on the right leg of the throne of glory, where the one who is worthy to observe the king and the throne is likened to a man who has a ladder in his house. This imagery is reflected in the iconography of the Assyrian tree. Now, the lines connecting the gods exactly render the divine genealogies known from late 2nd and early 1st millennium texts. 
he says genealogies, but the more accurate term would be theogenies. Fun fact. Not many people know the word theogony or theogenies, but it's a, it's a great one that I discovered as a teenager and used liberally in my book in the most accurate of ways, of course. But that is not all. The distribution of the mystic numbers in the diagram adds to it a dimension unknown in the Sephirotic tree. Six of the numbers are full tens, all neatly arranged in descending order on the branches of the tree, those higher than thirty to the right, the rest to the left side. The numbers on the trunk are not tens, and their arrangement is different. They begin with one, as in the Sephirotic tree, but the following two are not in numerical order. Does this distribution make any sense? Initially, we note that the numbers on the trunk, when added together, yield 30, the median number of the sexagesimal system. From the standpoint of number harmony, this tallies beautifully with the medium position of the trunk and recalls its Kabbalistic designation, the pillar of equilibrium. 30 is also a very important number in Kabbalah, so no surprise to find it here in Assyria. The position of the number 15 in the center of the diagram is justifiable from the same point of view. It's halved. On the surface, the numbers on the right and left of the trunk seem to upset the balance of the tree because the numbers on the left are consistently smaller than those on the right. Yet, when one adds the numbers together, one obtains for each branch the same total, 30, as for the trunk, the pillar of equilibrium. This is so because the numbers on the left side, according to the polar system of oppositions governing the tree, are negative and thus have to be subtracted from those on the right side. The sum total of the branches and the trunk, 4 times 30 equals 120, another biblical number which comes from the passage I wrote a book on, Genesis 6, 1 to 4, added to the sum total of the individual numbers. Actually, this is a reference, the, the, an origin of the number 120 that I didn't know when I wrote that. Uh, I forgot about it. I didn't. Oh, I also wasn't allowed to study extra-biblical liturgy when I... Uh, text, extra-biblical texts when I did the writing on the Nephilim, so you had to stay within the confines of the actual Tanakh. Added to the sum total of the individual numbers, 1 plus 10 divided by 14 divided by 15 plus dot 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 plus 60 equals 240 yields 360, the number of days in the Assyrian cultic year, and the circumference of the universe expressed in degrees. In all, it can be said that the distribution of the mystic numbers in the diagram displays an internal logic and remarkably contributes to the overall symmetry, balance, and the harmony of the tree. All this numerical beauty is lost with the decimal numbering of the Sephirotic tree, which can only reflect the genealogical order of the gods. The fact that the numerical balance of the tree can be maintained only on the condition that the left side numbers are negative are, is required by Kabbalistic theory in my opinion, amounts to mathematical proof of the correctness of the reconstruction. Considering further the perfect match obtained with the placement of the gods, their grouping into meaningful triads and genealogies, and the identification of Ashur with the winged disc, I feel very confident in concluding that the Sephirotic tree did have a direct Mesopotamian model, and that this model was perfected in the Assyrian Empire most probably in the early 13th century B.C. 
Now a little note on the number one or 360. The significance of this grand total can be appreciated when it is recalled that in the doctrinal system of Basilides, early 2nd century, God is the union of the 365 days of the year. And this is a shout-out, the 365 being the geometric value of both his mystic name, Abrasax, Abrasax, and its Greek appellation, Hagion Onoma, holy name. For many other examples of gematria, see Greek isopsephi, uh, in early Christianity and Gnosticism, as noted by Continot, the letters of Mithra, Greek Mithras, interpreted gematrically, likewise yield the number 365. And as Charles Ponce in Kabbalah, Ponce, it should, I've been saying Ponce, but it's Ponce, Charles, Ponce, Charles Ponce, uh, for 358 as the number of the Messiah, Hebrew Mashiach, equals 40 plus 300 plus 10 plus divided by 8. A schematic year of 360 days divided into 12 months of 30 days, each is encountered not only in the Assyrian cultic calendar, in Bel Arhi, but also in the late 2nd millennium astronomical text, Mul Apin. In the latter, it is correlated with a division of the solar year into four seasons of equal length, corresponding to the later division of the ecliptic into 12 zodiacal signs of 30 degrees each. Uh, for that, see Van der Werden, Anfange der Astronomie. Since the correct length of the solar year, 365 days, is also found in Mul Apin, the text's insistence on the schematic year indicates a desire to state the length of the year in terms of time degrees, derived from the circular path of the sun round the earth. In other words, the author of the text associated the sun not only with the length of the year, but with the circumference of the universe as well. This conclusion is confirmed by Julianus Apostatus, 361 to 363, uh, for his life, hymn to King Helios, which was observed by Van de Verden, is directly based on the Assyrian Mul Apin. This association explains the particular form of the solar disk in Ashur's icon. The Maltese cross symbolized the turning points and thus gave the disk a cosmic dimension, making it a symbol of the universe. The wavy lines radiating out between the arms of the cross, sometimes terminating in palmettes. Now, the Maltese cross, of course, is the proper name for the Philfo cross, or as we call it these days, the swastika. Of course, Hitler turned it on its side and reversed it so it was going against the sun. So the wavy lines radiating out between the arms of the cross turn the disc, the circle, into a variant of the eight-pointed star symbol of Ishtar, representing the divine pleroma in the form of a four-spoked wheel. The wheel form certainly referred to the eternal rotation of the seasons, and thus added to the disc the notion of eternity. We thus have the following string of associations, sun equals year equals universe equals eternity. It is not difficult to see why both Christ and Mithra were associated not only with the year, but also with the sun and Mithra with the zodiac. Now note the decimal numbering of the Sephirot derived from the order of emanation, of course, also applies to the Assyrian tree, showing that the number three was associated with Shin or Sin, the third god to be emanated, 
in the Assyrian tree. See also with the inclusion of mumu, zero, the equivalent of the non-sephra, da'at, means knowledge, the total of the gods in the reconstructed tree becomes ten, equaling the number of the sephirot in the sephirotic tree. In early Kabbalah, as also in Gnosticism, the need to unify the ten divine powers is commonplace. See Moshe Adel, Kabbalah, coincidentally, page 120. Note especially the following passage from the refutation of all heresies by the Gnostic monoemos, cited the monad, that is, the one title, is therefore, he says, also a decad, for by the actual power of this one title are produced duad, and triad, and tetrad, and pentad, and hexad, and heptad, and ogdoad, and ennead, up to ten. For these numbers, he says, are capable of many divisions, and they reside in that compounded and single title of the iota. Now compare this with the Mesopotamian lexical passage explaining the number ten as anu, antu, enlil, sin, shamas, adad, ishtar, ishtar, as a star, totality, wisdom, God, creation, and counting. It will surely not have escaped the attention of Mesopotamian mystics that 360 multiplied by 10 yields 3,600, the number of totality and perfection, Shar. Being able to reconstruct this tree, date it, and understand the doctrinal system underlying it, has tremendous implications to the history of religion and philosophy, which cannot be pursued within the limits of this paper. I will content myself with three concrete examples illustrating how the insights provided by the tree are bound to revolutionize our understanding of Mesopotamian religion and philosophy. Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. That's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. Hermetic Science Enterprises.co.uk